whatever. <clears throat> Imagine a young athlete training for the Olympic Games. Let's say he's a pole vaulter and he was very, very good at this, actually great in school, in high school, in college, but now he's training to go against the best in the world. He wants to go to the Olympic Games. But he doesn't have the money for a quality personal trainer. So, But he knows how to train himself, and he does. And he trains real hard for a whole year. And after a year, he's improved. But he knows what needs to be, what heights he needs to pole vault to actually make the team and hopefully get on a podium and he's not even close. After a year of training, he's better, but he's not really all that close. Certainly not close enough for a gold medal or his dream of having either a world record or Olympic record. He figures he's only got one chance at the Olympics, so he bites the bullet and he hires a really good personal trainer. As they start, as he starts with his personal trainer, the first thing that he realizes or notices is that the trainer has him working harder and for longer periods of time. Training on his own, when his heart rate and his respiratory rate reached a certain level, uh, a, a certain level of, and if you've, if you've trained for anything, um, you know, when, you're, when your heart rate reaches that uncomfortable, you're breathing heavy, it's uncomfortable. Well, when he was training on his own, he would stop and take a break. But the trainer won't let him. The trainer orders him when his heart rate is very high to keep going. When his respiratory rate is making him incredibly uncomfortable, his trainer says, keep going. Before he'd run five miles, now he's running eight. Before he'd do 50 push-ups, now he's doing 80. Before, on his own, he'd do 10 sprints, now he's doing 20. And on and on and on. The trainer realized it's not that the man lacked talent. He didn't lack talent. What he lacked was stamina. And like practically everybody, on his own... He really couldn't push his body and his muscles and his lungs through the pain. When the pain was high enough, in that super uncomfortable zone, when you enter it, you want to stop and rest. And you do. And you think it's good enough. Well, God does something like this with us. We move ahead in the spiritual life. We move ahead in maturity. And when things get a little uncomfortable, like our, like our guy here, when things get a little uncomfortable, like I have to love that guy or I have to say no to a particular temptation that, I, that I'm used to saying yes to, we give in. Things get uncomfortable. We reach that zone of uncomfortability spiritually and we give in. We give in to the temptation. We go to our flesh. We seek comfort. God allows us time to push on ahead, and then when we get to a certain level, and we're not willing to go any farther, because, again, it's uncomfortable and it's hard, that God sends his personal trainers. There's more than one. And I really love this analogy. God's personal trainers, what are they? Difficulties, problems, trials, people. They are the things that each of us face that we don't want to push through, that we want to give in to, that we don't want to actually 
behave in the way that God commands us to in that situation or to that person. An area of sin that is very much hindering our spiritual life becomes very apparent. God has made it apparent because he has sent his personal trainers. So they push us along. That's what these things do, these difficulties, these problems, these trials. They push us along. They push us harder. They push us farther spiritually than we ever dreamed that we could go. So why do we do it? If the problem comes, look, if the the temptation comes and I used to give an end to it, or the obstacle in my life, which is a certain area of sin, and I am not dealing with it, Why would I strive to stop? Why would I strive to deal with it? Why would I strive to say no to that temptation? Well, it's for the same reason that our our, uh, young athlete wants to keep going, and that's because he wants to go to the Olympics. First, he wants to get on the team. Second, if he's on the team, he doesn't want to embarrass his nation that he represents. He wants to do well. He fears not making the team. He fears not doing well in the competition. It's a fear. Is it a terror? No. He's not terrified of it or he wouldn't do it. But it is a healthy fear. It's a desire to fulfill a dream. You know, every believer has this desire. Every one of us. God has made us new. And every believer has the desire to please the Lord and to live like Christ. Every believer. We fear the Lord. And so when he sends his personal trainers into our lives to keep us working through the uncomfortable, through the painful, we keep going. The pressure, we press on. Through the pressure, we press on. As Paul wrote in Philippians chapter 3, I reach ahead to the upward call. Why does he do that? That's because he fears not reaching the top. We're climbing a mountain here. Uh, really, and, and the analogy of the, the Exodus generation in the wilderness, that's our lives. Every believer has the opportunity to get to the promised land, and we can get there sooner rather than later. And it depends on, you know, the Exodus didn't have fear of the Lord. They didn't. And that's what we're here (coughs) looking at today. Today we see, as we continue actually from yesterday, how the fear of the Lord means strong faith. The fear of the Lord is the means of strong faith. So we're going to start in Acts chapter 19. Sorry, chapter 9. Acts chapter 9. Let's open up in prayer. Let's thank God for his uh, great word and for his plan for our lives, thank him for uh, his revealing to us and his patience with us. And that each one of us, no matter what we've done and what we've been through, can excel in the spiritual life through his grace. With that, let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Thank you for the spirit within us that makes your word come alive, for it is alive. 
Your Word is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. And what it does, as Your Word states, is that it pierces down deep within us to reveal our motivations, to reveal the intents of our heart. And the intents of our heart are unknown to us, but they are known to You. And You reveal them to us through Your Word. And that, Father, although it may seem antithetical to love, that we are to fear you. And that's what we're going to see today. It's a difficult subject for us to understand. So we ask, Father, that to each of us listening, that you would, by your Spirit, give us insight into a difficult thing to comprehend. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. <clears throat> so in the Old Testament and the New Testament, we find the fear of the Lord. Uh, in the Old Testament, it's mentioned more often, actually quite a bit more often, but it is mentioned in the New Testament often enough. The Old Testament's bigger than the New Testament, so that needs to be taken into account. Yet, for us, the fear of the Lord is also linked to our redemption. We'll see that today. You've been saved by the blood of Christ. How would that lead to the fear of the Lord? It would seem odd to the natural, worldly person that we fear the one who is our father, the one who loves us, the one whose children we are, and whom we love in return. So it's odd, and it truly is to the world's standards. I find myself still grappling with it, and every time I get to teach on it, I, I actually relish the opportunity because it's more learning for me for something that I, I still have a hard time wrapping my mind around. Yet it is here in the Scripture and I know it is related to this study. If we're going to love like God loves, we've got to take these words that we see, love is patient, love is kind, love is not arrogant, love does not brag, and so on, and we have to take those and make them a reality in our very own soul. They can't just remain words on a page. Uh, <clears throat> they've got to be a reality in us. And the fear of the Lord is the key to that reality. Our fear of God is not a shrinking away from Him. That's obvious. It's not a terror of Him. It's not like Adam and Eve in the garden when they sinned and they hid from Him. It's not a terror of Him. In fact, we approach Him with confidence and boldness. He tells us to, and we do it. At the same time, we respect who He is with great reverence. Great reverence. Actually, the greatest of reverence. Our reverence for Him is of the deepest kind and at times practically trembling in his presence. I think if you haven't experienced that, and you know, I'm not saying that I've experienced a lot of it, but that's what we're talking about. You know, the reality of such an almighty, all-powerful, all-encompassing, omnipresent God who is all things. And we need to see him like he is. So, hence, fear emanates from love for him. There is another aspect of love that is not as peculiar. We want to do his will. If you love the Lord, you want to do his will. We closed with that yesterday. The Lord said, if you love me, you keep my commandments. He said it more than once. God said this to Israel. You will love the Lord your God with all your heart. And that summarized the whole law. Love me and you keep my commandments. But also the scripture says, Old Testament and New, that you fear him and you keep his commandments. 
we have learned that lo- what love is, and we want more than anything to do it. If we love the Lord, we want to be like him. And we want it really more than anything. I know at times we don't. At times we forget. <laughs> it's one of the things that I've been thinking about a lot lately is how forgetful I get. And, you know, in the middle of the day somewhere, I'm, I'll get all anxious or bitter or angry about something. Or sometimes I'll just get cranky for no reason at all. And I realize I am. And I'll be like, Joe, what is wrong with you? And I know at that moment I'm not thinking about God at all. We understand. So if we want to be loving like he loves, so it should be easy, right? right? He makes us new. He gives us the Holy Spirit. God indwells us. We're the holy temple of God. We've been made righteous, imputed with righteousness. We have eternal life. We're new creatures in Christ. So why isn't it easy? So we come to understand that there are a lot of obstacles in the way. In our journey through the wilderness, our own life, in our journey to maturity, we realize that there are a lot of obstacles in our way. We are easily self-deceived. We know this. We can be ignorant. We are ignorant. We know that. We're lustful, prideful, susceptible to many temptations. And all of these will not allow us to love with agape love. So, we have areas of weakness and types of sin that we can so easily fall into that will, not, that will not allow us to love as God loves. And still, we do want to love as God loves more than anything. So, we fear not loving because it's a very real possibility that we won't. And so, we fear it. We fear not doing it. Like going to the Olympics. It's hard to go to the Olympics. And you would fear not making the team. That would drive you. And we fear not loving like God loves, if we want to. So we fear the things that halt love, and therefore we fear the Lord. Now, in the modern Western church, modern Western church, in Europe and in America, you know, what have you, if you've ever thought of Christianity in the Middle Ages, in Europe, because America wasn't really a nation then, but it's around 1000 AD, somewhere around there, 1000 to 1200 or 800 to 1200, before the Enlightenment, the uh, so called Enlightenment. But what, what do we think of Christianity being like in medieval Europe? Right? Domination by the Catholic Church, for sure. It's before the Protestant Reformation. And yet, we, and so we look down at it. I mean, if you've ever learned of it or thought about it, uh, we've satirized it, we've criticized it, this fear of God that they had. And we do realize that in some instances in the Middle Ages, there were some, uh, especially there were some particular popes uh, that really gave in to this fear of God that led them to asceticism. I mean, less like denying themselves every pleasure. And they did so so called out of the fear of the Lord. And in some cases, it just looked insane and ridiculous. And it is. And it was. 
But what have we done in the West? The modern Western church has, for the most part, done away with the fear of the Lord. It's gone. When's the, when do you ever, like, we, we talk about it here, but probably not often enough. But, uh, and it, you know, is it comfortable? Is it your favorite message? Ooh, I'm learning about the fear of the Lord today. I think if we understood it, I think we'd be pretty pumped about it, actually. But, you know, is holiness, holiness is not a frequent topic in the popular American church of our age. The love of God, the love of Jesus, everybody, you know, it's more of a kumbaya moment, you know, in a lot of these churches. And the holiness of God, not the top, not the frequent topic of sermons, and yet, the love of God is the fear of God. The love of God for us is a direct, has a direct result of us fearing him. Because he has made us to be his own. Yeah, imagine, imagine you're the, uh, you know, like the prince and the pauper story. I used to, always, I loved that story when I was a kid. But... You know, that's different what I'm thinking of. You know, they kind of switch places. But say say you're the pauper, you're the poor kid, and you, you get thrown into the palace, right? And you think, oh, my God, I get to, you know, I'm not poor anymore. I can eat whatever I want. I can sleep in whatever I want. I'm not in danger anymore. I'm not going to die of cholera, probably. You know, there's a lot of benefits. But, you know, what kind of missing from the story is what do you have to do now as royalty? What's expected of you? You know, if I lived a life where I could do anything I want, say I joined the military. You, know, you get three square meals a day. You're taken care of. There'll always be a roof over your head, and there'll always be clothes on your back. Right? And you'll always have something to do. <laughs> Not that I've been in the military. I don't experience that. But, but what now is required of you, and what is required of you is difficult. You don't make your own schedule anymore. You know, you don't you don't say what you're going to do anymore. And and what you have to do is actually risen to a level that's far higher than anything you've ever tried to accomplish. And you see God calls us to holiness and it's not what it you you know, it's not what life used to be. We're called into when God says now you're my son, it's far higher than being in the military. It's far higher than being in a royal palace. It's far higher than anything that the earth has to offer. Being a child of God is required righteousness, holiness, love. It's required of us. It's it's the family motto. God is love, and I'm a child of God now. So you see, when you become a believer and you come to realize, and why have you become a believer? Because God loved you. And then God calls you into his family, and he says, now you have to be holy. And, and you know, maybe we think, well, geez, God, why didn't you tell me in the first place? You know, I might not have joined the family. And we're still thinking of it wrong. See, because what is holiness? Holiness is, you know, has the love of God in it. What is holiness is to be like God. How can that be bad? Holiness is God. It's his behavior. It's his conduct. It's his attributes. It's his nature. It's what heaven's like. 
Heaven is holiness. You know, how can it be bad? How can I, being holy, be a bad thing? Whereas what I don't want to give up, what I want to hold on to, like the exodus in the wilderness, you know, what I want to hold on to, is it, how does that compare to holiness? How does that compare to the life of God? I'm settling for far, far less. And this is what God wants for us. So, fear of the Lord propels us forward even when we don't want to do it. So, first, every believer has a lasting covenant relationship with God as Father. We're in the family. Right? New covenant in His blood. The church begins the fulfillment of the new covenant established by the blood of Christ. And the fear of the Lord, written in the New Testament, is to us, and it is something that we have to do. You know? and, and we are to fear what and we are to fear not fulfilling and not pleasing our Father. And that's a hearty fear. That's a good fear. And it's, you know, it's not a fear of like, well, God's going to smash me. Which, you know, yeah, he might discipline you. But <clears throat> I think as believers as we grow, in fact, I know, as believers as we grow in grace and knowledge, discipline from God is nothing that we fear. We actually relish it. You know, when God brings in the discipline that says, child, you're going too far in this direction. You need to turn around. And we realize we're going too far. We're like, God, thank you. Thanks for that net that stopped me. And we are grateful for the course correction. Um, So we don't fear discipline. We don't fear him. You know, it's not like we're in terror of him that we want to hide from him. But what comes to happen is we fear not pleasing him. We fear not fulfilling the plan that he's given us. And that is a healthy fear. Technically, it's the fear of him. So in Acts 9.31, the fear of the Lord results in peace and being built up. Look at Acts 9.31. Speaking of this early church, in the early church, man, what a time this must have been. The church is brand new. In Acts 9.31, so the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria enjoyed peace, being built up and going on in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it continued to increase. So notice they all go together here. The way I wrote my slide, it looks like fear causes this, but it, you know, now that I read the passage again, it's like they, they kind of, they, not kind of, they do. They all go together. They enjoyed peace, being built up. That means they're growing. And they're going on, meaning they're living on in the fear of the Lord. Right? They want to please the Lord. They realize what they have. Brand new church. <laughs> this is, you know, uh, Christianity is just spanking new. And to them it was something else. You get, Right here in Acts, actually, just the early part, if you read like chapter... Three, four, five, six, onward up to up to like fifteen is that beautiful display of that early church and how it how they they just adored their new life. 
And I think a lot of that's missing in Christianity. I mean, I know it to be. That Christianity in the West has become this kind of casual thing that you do, like going to the gym or something. You know, it's just it's a place to go, a place to socialize, a place to, you know, kind of get your batteries recharged, and then you go back to your real life, right, after Sunday. And it's not like a life, which is too bad. And what is missing in it is this, amongst other things, but the fear of the Lord is definitely missing. Go to 2 Corinthians 7. Uh, in 2 Corinthians 7.1, the fear of the Lord gives a desire to have pure hearts before him. Second <clears throat> Corinthians 7.1 Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, Perfecting holiness in the fear of the Lord. Right? Perfecting means to mature, to complete. Complete what? It's holiness. Holiness is my life set apart. My life set apart. How I treat people in love, not like the world. It's not eros, it's agape. My own self-control, my own behavior... Not like the world, unto the Lord. I'm not a citizen of this world. All right, my my flesh. I have control over my flesh, and so on. You know, all of the virtues, the fruit of the spirit. Hence, the holiness of God perfected where in the fear of God. It's not for me, you know, for a believer. And God is teaching us this. You know, He's Thank God for his patience. And for, those of, for those who don't see it, don't get it, well, if you're alive, there's still hope to get it, right? If you're alive, there's always time. People change in a day. I've seen it happen. People's entire lives, I mean Christians, who their entire lives can change in one day, can be one thought, this clarity that happens. And, and that's why we have to be patient with everybody. You know, it's, it's a very real trap. If you start to get it and your life starts to change, it's, it's a very real um, and a good thing that you want to pull everybody along with you. You know, like, I get it now. <laughs> and, you know, you want to take everybody by the nape of the neck and pull them in to understanding. How can, you can't do that. You know, if someone if someone came to a, a mature believer and they said, teach me how to love God, the proper response to that mature believer would be, I can't teach you anything about that. I can tell you what's in the Scripture, but you have to find it for yourself. You have to search. You have to reach ahead. You have to commit. You've got to walk with the Lord. I can't do that for you. I can tell you the things that you need to do, like study and pray and, and resist and say no to temptation, all of those things. But you probably already know that. But I can, and I can encourage you to do it, but I can't do it for you. 
So, notice the uh, cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh. In uh, 2 Corinthians 7.1, where he says, having these promises, the promises that he's referencing are in chapter 6, which are about the fact that the Corinthians are the holy temple of God and they're indwelt by God. Since you are, right, this temple of God indwelt by God, how should the temple be? And that's what he says. Now, since we are the temple of God indwelt by God, let's cleanse ourselves from all defilement of the flesh, of the sin nature, and perfect holiness in God's fear. So, this fear is keeping our thoughts and motivations and priorities in the way of God's will. <clears throat> Next, the fear of the Lord motivates our service in love. So, in Ephesians 5.21, which, um, you know, in this passage we have, Don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. Rejoicing, being thankful, singing to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. And then he finishes this with be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. And this, the Greek word is phobos, or it's really phobos, but they teach us the pronunciation. But um, where we get phobia from, it's fear. It's exactly what it means. Fear of Christ. Am I in terror of Christ? No. But I fear not being like him. Why? He's my Lord, he's my high priest, my Savior, my brother. You know, do I, do I want to please him? Do I want to be like him? And if I, tr- if I see this life for what it is, it's the only thing I want. All right, 1 Peter chapter 1. And we look at a, a meteor past meteor. Not the not the rock that comes out of the sky, but uh, or out of the, you know what I mean, meaty, thicker. <laughs> it's so funny. So I'm listening. I'll give you a segue here. It's a good commercial time. It's halfway through. Um, I'm listening to this book about Apollo 11. It's fascinating, you know. Um, so they and in the book they've landed on the moon and, you know, Neil and Buzz are out on the moon's surface and they're taking pictures and video and collecting rocks and playing like little kids, basically. And uh, one of the dangers, you know, when you get out there, there's the danger of radiation because there's no atmosphere. Um, There's the danger of temperature. Uh, again, because there's no atmosphere, so uh, when the when you're in the sun, it's something like 400 degrees, and then you step into the shade, and it's like zero degrees, you know. And you have to. So the suit that they're wearing is real important. Plus, there's no pressure, there's no oxygen, right? So there's a whole slew of things. Uh, the suit that they're wearing has something like 28 layers. So if you ever see the video and they, they you know that they have to that's the reason why they're walking like that. But one of the other dangers was tiny meteorites. You know, on our planet they get burned up at like nothing in the atmosphere, but since there's no atmosphere, you can get hit by a tiny little rock that's coming at you at 60,000 miles an hour. It's just going to fly right through your head. And you just have to be lucky. There's no way to know when they're coming or where. So, anyway, there's my meteorite story for you. <clears throat> and now, back to our regularly pro- uh, scheduled programming. 
The fear of the Lord comes from an understanding of God's grace. Does that sound right to you? You And it is, but initially we say, well, God's grace, that doesn't mean I fear. I mean, kind of loosey-goosey, I can do whatever I want. You know, but it, and truly, God's grace means that I get all the blessings of God, and I never merit them. I never do anything that merits them. I'm not worthy of them. It's truly the function of God's agape love to me. I'm graced out. So, this being graced out means that I'm in God's family, and God's family loves. Does God give us other options in the scripture? You say, well, you know, well, you know, you could be a really good family member and you really should love. Or you could be one of those family members that were, you know, if you didn't show up at the reunion, we're not too disappointed. Um, God gives us no options here. No, we know we have a choice and he says that. But we have no options. We have to be this way. So... The fear of the Lord comes from an understanding of God's grace and redemption. And that is the true motivation for, as we see here, eager, fervent, and constant love. Three words that would define this one Greek word we'll see. Eager love, I'm eager to do for you. This really takes a consistent, sober mind. Spiritual mind. Because I can't wait till I feel love. And then I'll love you. Boy, that's going to be pretty infrequent. I mean, when do you feel agape love? You don't. This is eager. Meaning, I'm always looking for the opportunity to serve you, to be kind to you, to be gracious to you, to be humble. I mean, I'm always looking for it. Eager, fervent. You know, is motivated and constant. Look at 1 Peter 1.17. If you address as Father, the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth. Now, just soak that in there for a second into your heart. If you address as Father, the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, So, are we going to be judged according to our works? Yes. And we'll see that on the board here uh, in a bit, in a minute or two. Uh, It's a place where Paul mentions the fear of the Lord, which is we are all going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ and we're going to be judged for what we've done, for our works. So, he says, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay upon the earth. Now, if I'm running around in life my whole time that I'm here on earth is constantly in terror of God, that's certainly not what this means. So we continue. Knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers. You didn't buy this. But here's the price. With the precious blood, as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. So in verses 18 
all the way really through 21, we have the redemption that we've all received by the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. Right? You see it there. It's, it's mentioned in, in good detail here by, by Peter. Uh, we didn't purchase our way into God's family. Interestingly enough, in Rome you could buy, and it was very expensive, but you could buy citizenship. If you weren't a Roman citizen, you know, a Roman citizen came with a lot of perks, and you could buy it. And uh, so, you know, perhaps Peter has something like that in mind, that I bought my way into the club. But Peter says here, no, none of us bought our way into this family. We were made the children of God with what? The precious blood of the land, uh, lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. So this perfect son of God sacrifices himself for us, and it's through him that we are raised from the dead like he is. And so we're in the family. And being in the family, things are required of the family. And it, it's, you know, they're not requirements to be like, oh, man, I can't stand this. I wish I, wish I knew about this family before I joined it. And the only reason any believer would say that is because they don't understand what agape love is. They think it's a burden, but that's their flesh talking. That's the world talking. That is a lack of understanding. It is the greatest life that there could be. How could it not be? It's God's life. It's God's life in us. How can that not be wonderful? Now, and we must be careful. We have to say, well, I think it's wonderful to a certain extent. No, stop that. You must go all the way. Right? Every aspect of your life, every person in your life, everything. Do not compromise it. Do not water it down because if you do, you don't have it. You must go all the way. That's why fear comes in because when we have, if we don't have fear... Like the athlete, when our respiratory rate and our heart rate gets high enough, that's it. We want to stop. It's too painful. And God bids us to keep going. Because we'll never know stamina unless we step into the place where it's hard. And in that place, we keep going. And then we'll see what we can really do. What God should say. What God can really do in us. We must not. Stop. So, verse 22, Since you have an obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. For you have been born again, not of a seed which is perishable, but imperishable. Right, this seed. What is this seed? It is the divine nature that we have. We have been born again. And being born again, we have to love. We are born again of a seed which is perishable. I'm sorry, which is... Let's read that again, Joe. For you have been born again not... There's a key not there. Not of a seed which is perishable, but imperishable. That is through the living and enduring... Word of God, the gospel. Now, uh, notice that, first off, 
Verse 22 says, since you have obedience to the truth, purified your souls. See that word purified? It's the same word that we just saw back in 2 Corinthians 7 that says cleanse ourselves. Purify and cleanse. They're the same Greek word, katharizo, uh, and it means to clean or to purify. Notice that in verse 22 there's obedience. And where does this obedience come from? Back in verse 17, it's our fear of the Lord that leads to obedience. The same thing in the Old Testament. The Old Testament, God said, fear the Lord and obey me. We saw that yesterday in Deuteronomy chapter 10 and multiple other places in the Old Testament where the fear of the Lord led to obedience. It makes sense, right? If I fear him, I'm going to obey him. And it's the same thing here. And then, so this obedience leads to, or is, I would say equal to, simultaneous with, a sincere, which means an honest, not, not hypocrisy. That's what Peter's getting at. It's, it, even Peter knows back in this early part in the church, there's, there's a lot of hypocrites running around pretending to love people like God loves. And they don't really. So a sincere love of the brethren. Now, love of the brethren is Philadelphia. Or the great city, which is not so great anymore from what I understand, <laughs> Philadelphia. Philadelphia means brotherly love. Note it, Philadelphia is phileo. It's the Greek word phileo. Love the brethren. And then he says fervently, and this is a rare word in the Greek, but it means eagerly, fervently, and constantly. Just let those three words, take them in. Because next, fervently love, that's agape. Fervently love is agape. Love the brethren is phileo. And so here's one of the passages that shows, you know, there's, at least as Peter's writing, and in multiple places in John's writing, phileo and agape are used, you know, overlappingly, I guess. I'm not going to say they're exactly the same. I don't think that's true, but they... They're here using the exact same context. Love the brethren and then fervently, eagerly. That's what this word means. It's the Greek word uh, ektenos. Fervently, eagerly, constantly. So as in the Old Testament, fear is connected to obedience. And our obedience is coterminous with our faith. Right? If you obey, you believe. If you believe, you obey. If you fear, you obey. And uh, notice that, you know, so, you know, part of me might say, well, okay. This sounds like a tough life. Right? Where's the fun in it? When do I get, when do I get to have any fun, God? And God would say, if he were talking to us, God would say, I have fun all the time, and this is how I live. So don't think you know what fun is, all right? First off, be humble. You don't know what fun really is, all right? Follow me. <clears throat> so anyway, it sounds like, so I'm going to be obedient, I'm going to 
fear you, and I'm going to love all these people who, you know, a great many of them don't deserve it, God, just between me and you. I mean, I know you understand that, but they don't deserve it. They're probably going to spit in my face. They're going to take advantage of me, and I fear that. And, you know, when you fear the consequences of loving someone who's not going to love you in return, and I do mean with agape love and not romantic love. That's not here. When I fear loving with God's love someone who's not going to love me in return, I say, you know, there's a real fear there. I feel it as well as anybody. And when you, what you fear more than God in that case is your own conscience. You know, we judge ourselves and say, well, you know, I deserved better. That's your conscience. Your conscience says, I deserve this much, whatever it is. And God says, why don't you move that down and out? And what you deserve now is me, God says. You have me. This is why Jesus would say, if they hit you on the cheek, give them the other. They take your stuff, give them more. I'm like, "Uh -uh." (laughs) uh-uh. Right? Conscience and pride. There's like a pride in our conscience that says, no way, man, I ain't doing that. Uh, Hopefully, God, you don't put me in that situation and that would be fine with me. But I think if we're not put in that situation, all of us as believers, myself included, and we don't follow through on it the way God wants us to in love, then we're going to miss out on what the discovery of what that is of God, we won't see it. And I I do wonder if for eternity we'll even see it because it's only here that such situations occur. I mean, on earth in a fallen world with fallen people, it's only here that such things happen. And we say, whoa, you know, I dodged a bullet there. You know, uh, I didn't have to be Christ-like in that situation. Maybe the situation didn't come up. Right? We fear it. If we're we're honest, let's be honest, we fear it. And in that case, what God's trying to get us all all to is through the wilderness to the promised land is that we're willing to do anything that God says and rejoice in it. Because it's just more of him. And more of him is more of perfect, holy goodness. So, uh, yeah, now here's my thought. I got off on a tangent there. Am I? Is this horrible? No, for, here's one reason why it's not. Uh, in verse 21, right, 1 Peter 1, 21, through him... Your believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and your hope are in God. You see, while you're obeying, while you're fearing, and while you're loving, your faith and your hope are all put in his hands. You're not in, the point is, you're not in this alone. It's not you on your own. It's you with your faith, your life, your hope. Hope is your expectation of what's going to happen here. All of that is in God's hands. And being in God's hands, it's in the best hands it could be in, right? 
being in God's hands, this is in the hands of the one who with a word created the universe, in his hands, and then you can move on to do what you do as he commands you, knowing that the results are in his hands, and it couldn't be in any better hands. My hope is in his hands. And, again, somewhat odd. I I mean, I I don't think the oddity of this or the strangeness of this would ever go away. Which I think is perfect. Because, as we looked at yesterday, God's not what anybody expected, right? God is not. Life isn't what anybody expected. It's very complex. It's very odd. So, the fear of God is not like our fear of most things. Our fear of Him is something born from our love of Him, our love for Him. We want to please Him. We want to follow Him. We want to love like Him. And we realize that it's not a given that we will. I might, I might not. I could throw my whole spiritual life away living for myself. I could not see all that God has asked me to see or invited me to see. And so, you know, do I want that? Am I okay with that? Or as Jesus would say, is the old wine good enough? We understand that there are many obstacles in the way of our wilderness journey. There is, again, our ignorance our desire for the flesh, our deception by the flesh, self-deception, our deception by the world, our weaknesses and our sins. The fear of the Lord for us becomes a fear of not being like Him. That's the fear of Him. So in 2 Corinthians 5.9, I don't know why I didn't have you turn there because I have another passage in 1 Peter, I guess. But in 1 Corinthians 5.9, Paul writes, Therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. And then in verse 11, he says, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we, and that's Paul referring to himself and his co-workers, we persuade men, but we are made manifest to God. In other words, God sees us. Clearly, what our motivations are. And he says, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. Now, Paul persuading men and his cohorts, uh, that's their ministry. That is what they're called to do. That's what Paul's called to do as an apostle to the Gentiles. It's his job. It's God has commissioned him to persuade men with the gospel. And he says, look, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. The fear of the Lord, Paul is saying here, is our motivation to do what God has called us to do. It's not a bad thing. It's a very good thing. And I purposely left out verse 10. So verse 9 again, Paul says whether we're home or absent. Home or absent doesn't mean like here on earth, meaning alive or dead. It is our ambition 
to be pleasing to Him. And then we know the fear of the Lord. And right in between is the judgment seat of Christ in verse 10. In verse 10, we have wedged in between these two verses the judgment seat of Christ, which we've seen already mentioned. As Peter said, uh, Peter, well, you're still here. Uh, in verse 17, 1 Peter 1.17, if you address as Father the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, Conduct yourselves in fear during your stay upon the earth. The one who judges each one's work. In uh, 2 Corinthians 5.10, we must all stand before the judgment seat of Christ to be recompensed, judged, recompensed for our works in the flesh, whether good or bad. And so we want to be pleasing to him. We fear, so how does the pleasing and the judgment go to my ministry, as it does for Paul here in verse 11, is that I fear not pleasing him, and I fear not, you know, when I'm with him, and if he says, you know, you really didn't have any good works, I don't know why I'm laughing, but, you know, if you really didn't have any good works, I mean, I don't know, I don't know how it's going to feel or what it's going to feel like, people have opinions on that, it's nonsense to even think about it because it's impossible to imagine but you know do I want to not that I want to impress him in any way it's how can I impress this man this God man but it is my my relationship to him is something that you know I want to be like him and when I stand at his judgment he's going to say either you were like me or you weren't basically right I mean, if I, if I become like him, I will have those good works that he's going to judge me for. If I haven't become like him in my life, then I am not going to have them. I'm going to have a bunch of bad works that are all motivated by my own selfishness. It's going to be one or the other. And that's why he says they're either bad or they're good. And nobody's going to be able to, none of us are going to be able to say, well, you, you know, what you, so my father, my genetics, my environment, the people I was with, had a hard time, had no money, had this, had that. He's going to say, come on, all of that's nonsense. And you know it. And so, that is the fear of the Lord. So we've seen here today that the fear of the Lord is a life of peace. That was our first passage in Acts 19. It's a life of peace. The early church had peace. They were built up and they moved on in the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is a motivation to a pure heart. How could I love others without a pure heart myself? I couldn't. You know, getting back to our opening analogy, I've got to be in spiritual shape. If I'm messing around with my flesh and the world for year after year after year, when am I going to grow up? Right? You're not. You, you know, it's, and thank God God is patient. He's patient with you. He's forgiven you. Absolutely. But at some point, you know, every believer has to say, I got to get going and I cannot remain in this place till I die. What's this place? Thank you, Alan. Uh, that's the Exodus 
the run of the Exodus. Where I'm going to use my pen that I always mess up, but right, they're roaming around and roaming around and roaming around and around. <laughs> and for 40 years, around and around. Well, they don't. They don't all. They don't go. That's a. That's too big of a circle. But as they as they get up here, you know, they send the spies in, and the spy says we can't go, and so God says you're going to remain in this area for 40 years. That is not a fun place to spend 40. That's not a fun place to spend a week. Never mind 40 years. It's a horrible place. But God sent them water from a rock, manna from heaven. They were provided for. You see, the longer we... And what didn't they have? Fear of the Lord. They didn't have it. They didn't believe it. It was mind-boggling after all they had seen. That they wouldn't fear this God. Mind-boggling. But the same is true for all believers. It's mind-boggling. You know, I think of myself as, uh, as I guess, I would hope to say I'm starting to fear him. At, you know, I ask myself, I do all the time, but why didn't I fear him 20, 30 years ago? Because I'm an idiot moron? Yeah. But regardless, they went around and in. And that all happened in the last year. We've got to get in there. There's no time to lose. There's no time to waste. As you think you're living in the best of both worlds, giving God some of your life and giving your own flesh and your own desires and your own sins, the other part of your life, all you're doing is running around in circles in this desert. That's all you're doing. And I have done it. Every believer does it. And God is patient. Everything is forgiven. Everything. There's no condemnation. But what does God want for us? He wants us in the promised land. The land flowing with milk and honey. For us, it's a land flowing with agape, with joy and peace. From the fear of the Lord. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your word. Thank you for teaching us your fear, the fear that we should have for you, an awesome respect, an awesome worship in which we give ourselves to you and do your will and do so, Father, with our hearts, our minds, our souls, our bodies. Thank you, Father, for the opportunity and privilege and for your grace and mercy that we are forgiven of all things and that we can pursue and start our pursuit at any time. If we have been disobedient children, we can return to you and you will run out to us and throw your arms around us. And you love us that much. Thank you, Father, for all that you are. In Christ's name, amen.